0: Today, Lord willing, we will finish the Book of Philippians. So if you haven't turned, turn to Philippians chapter four. I did hear a story uh, a couple weeks now uh, from the turn of the century when wealthy uh, well-known person, Andrew Carnegie, was giving away lots and lots of money through. And, and I'm sure you can understand, once people heard that Andrew Carnegie is giving lots and lots of money, more and more people started reaching out to Andrew Carnegie, writing letters asking him for, for money for, for themselves or for projects they're working on. And one of these such letters came from Carnegie's good friend, Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote, Dear sir and friend, you seem to be in prosperity. Could you lend an admirer $1.50 to buy a hymn book? God will bless you. I feel it. I know it. And so will I. P.S. Don't send the hymn book. Send the money. How you handle and think about money says a lot about you. Sometimes it says things about you that you might not like to be said. We often like to keep things buried beneath the surface, and how we handle money brings that to the surface for us to consider and for others to observe. How you earn money, spend it, save it, give it, ask for it, And what does money promise? But but freedom, power, safety, and satisfaction. But only if you get enough of it. And yet, how much money is enough? Usually, it's just a little more than what we have. Contentment and money seem like oil and water, they usually don't go together. And the Apostle Paul will take two subjects, those two subjects primarily, and bring them together to teach us this morning. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs defined contentment in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, as this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly will in every condition, so in Burroughs' definition, to be content is, to be, is, is more than accepting God's will for your life. It's actually delighting in God's will. And spiritual contentment is wanting what God wants. And when you're content in God's will, you're getting what you want in this life. But it's not sinful, materialistic, or selfish things. It's what God wants. And as we will hear this morning in the passage, it's learned, But when you're living without Christ, you're convinced that getting what your heart desires is what contentment is. But but really, friends, you'll never truly be content. You'll always be wanting more. And so Paul here is going to end our letter to the Philippians for verses 10 through the end of the chapter by encouraging us in our contentment in Christ as he writes to his partners here at the Church of Philippi. And contentment is the focus this morning. And so here's the main idea as we look at this passage. Partners in ministry learn contentment and give sacrificially for God's glory. Partners in ministry learn contentment and give sacrificially for God's glory. Paul wants to train his readers to think Christianly in order that they would live faithfully. And so this book has is, is all, all been about partnership, and as partners in ministry, there, there are some lessons that we can learn. So there's three points there as we walk through. To learn contentment, to give sacrificially, and to glorify God. The third point is the shortest one. The, two, the first two are the longer ones if you're taking notes. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I'm going to read this all, and then we will dive into those three points. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, first, as Paul dives in here, he's going to talk about learning contentment. He says there in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly his rejoicing over the Philippians is, is ultimately rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. And Paul's vertical relationship with Jesus has produced in him a Christ-like, selfless, loving concern that is now seen horizontally directed towards the people of Jesus's family, which is the church. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So, you need to understand, this is not Paul with some passive-aggressive dig at the church, okay? He's not stating the facts that they desired, but he's just stating that they desired to support him, they just didn't have the opportunity. So he's not just, you get that, right? He's not being passive-aggressive, like, finally, finally you got the money to me, guys. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's rejoicing in the opportunity that Epaphroditus brought in, in supplying this this need to him. And, and Paul is turn uh Torian, it seems, he wanted to express his thankfulness for their partnership through the gift, but he, he doesn't want us to give the impression that, that he felt neglected in some way, that, 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 that they had somehow messed up. That's not what Paul is wanting to do. And, and Paul here is really showing us again what partnership looks like for the Christian. Uh, even though the image of partnership is, is talked about and floated all over in the world of business the model of gospel partnership doesn't have the same model as the world of business. Gospel work is much more like raising a family than setting up a production line or selling a product. They're not the same thing. And he's speaking here like a spiritual father to his spiritual children. If you're you're curious what discipleship looks like, read these verses again. This is what we're seeing here. It's right on the page. Paul is showing what it looks like as he disciples these believers by sharing again of what they have done for him and then the benefit it will bring to them. And then he shows some vulnerability. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. See, Paul says, I have learned it. Contentment doesn't come naturally to anyone. Even after you've been converted to Jesus Christ, and even if I have walked with Him for years, it doesn't just come. So learning contentment is not passive. It's not something that you just allow to happen to you, but you have to engage in the process to learn contentment. And Paul has had ample opportunities to learn contentment. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. You see Paul here is reminding them again of the extremities that he has faced in his life, and he doesn 't specify the events of what he 's talking about here, but we know what he what 's talking about right have we, if we 've read the New Testament, listen to second corinthians eleven okay this is paul 's resume on how he learned contentment, okay listen. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was at a drift to sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul has learned contentment. I mean, He, he lists it out for us. In case you wonder, really, Paul, have you really learned poverty? Have you really suffered? Paul's like, here. He knows what it it feels like. He's experienced what it means to be brought low. And that's what he's saying. It means to be humbled, even humiliated. And he's got the resume to prove it. And, and, And to abound means to have more than was necessary. And Paul states that here. He's he's abounded by those giving to him in, in, in the needs that he's had. And Paul has learned all of this in his full life and he was only able to learn it through his full life. Friends, there is no quick shortcut to contentment. We have to go through plenty and poverty. Interestingly here, Paul uses the phrase to be content, and it was a term that the Stoic philosophers were regularly using in that day. But their understanding of contentment was one of self-sufficiency that allowed a person to live a life of mind over matter. Those people are still around today. They taught and lived that pain was something that that could be overcome with just the right thinking. Some people may be tempted to think that Paul is just now rehashing this Stoic virtue. But really what Paul is doing in this is he's taking that Stoic worldly virtue and he's turning it on its head. And so Paul is Christianizing the Stoic self-sufficiency and makes his contentment not on himself, but on God and God alone. You can't do it on your own. It's only through Jesus Christ. And then he strengthens his argument with verse 13. And you've been waiting for this verse, right? I know I've been waiting for this verse. How many of you memorized this verse at some point in your life when you were young? Just me, all right. Do you guys own Bibles? We can get some to you. Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of the most popular verses in our world today. And it's regularly misunderstood and regularly taken out of context. In fact, I have a t-shirt that says I can do all things through a verse, taken out of context. <laughs> a lot of well-meaning people love to find verses and use them in any way they like to take to take them and apply it without looking at the context of what Paul's saying. And context is so important here. When Paul says I can do all things, what he means is I can endure all conditions. And those conditions are either plenty, we love plenty, or poverty, we don't love poverty. I can do all things. And so this verse, this section is comprehensive. The all means all, but all things is not a blank check for us to do whatever we want. It's not a promise that God will do anything that our heart desires. Remember, contentment means we want what God wants. Not what we want. And so, this verse, what's the odds applied? How many of you watch basketball? Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors has this on his shoe. He's, he's outspoken and he writes it on his shoe. Celebrities post this on their Instagram pages. Friends, if, if you cannot make an NBA three pointer, this verse will not help you make it. That's not what it's saying here. And this is the point that's overlooked in sports and other things in life. This verse applies just as much to losing as it does to winning. If you look back at the list of things in verse 12, half of them are bad. I can do all things, like suffer. Being in poverty is on the list. It's it's not always making the winning shot or making a movie to win an Oscar. The heart of contentment is I can be brought low and I know how to abound. So you might make the winning shot in basketball, but you might just throw up a brick. Either way, it's through him who strengthens the Christian. The all things is talking about abounding and abasing, being really hungry. That's on the list. I can do all things. I can be hungry. I can suffer. Because Christ strengthens me. See, the world that doesn't, that isn't the world doesn't love that. Right? Maybe you don't love that. Maybe your flesh is like, I don't want that. I want to do the other stuff. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. And so context is so important to understand this verse. And so when we when we quote this verse, we need to back it up with the context that Paul himself wrote the verse. And half of the things that he says that he can do in Christ is suffering. And so don't apologize for the suffering that you're experiencing. It's part of learning contentment as a Christian. Furthermore, uh, we, we might want to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. While well, as Christians, we, we should say, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You see the difference? The verse has little to do with us, and a lot to do with God in the midst of plenty and poverty. See, Paul is not saying, like the Stoic philosophers, I can do anything I set my mind on, like Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Paul instead draws on the resources and strength of God, our Creator, knowing that Christ himself was humbled for a season and obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Paul is framing the experience of contentment in terms of dependency on God. The Greek actually conveys something like this, that I have the power for all circumstances through the one who strengthens me. And Paul is emphatic that this is something that has to be learned as a Christian. And the only way, friends, to learn contentment is going through poverty and plenty, it involves us attending the school of poverty and attending the school of plenty. And each school has different tests for you to walk through. In the school of plenty, we can be tested with greed. Something Sometimes having more possessions or more money creates in us an insatiable desire for more. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this is also vanity. We're not going to be done talking about money because in a few weeks, Lord willing, Pastor Chris will tackle First Timothy 6. Paul has something to say about money then too. But then there's the school of poverty. And really, in the school of poverty, you're also tested with greed. The poor aren't immune to Greed. Instead, it could tempt them to become rich through sinful avenues. You might be envious of neighbors and friends who have more than you. The rich are tempted to be God, and the poor are tempted to be rich without God. Either way, contentment is learned through the schools of plenty and poverty. So these words of wise instruction for us teach us that the contentment we experience in this world does not… uh, depend on anything that, that this world alone has to offer. The only way we will be truly content is in Christ, whether we suffer or abound. All of our contentment comes from Christ. You can't will your way into it. You can't achieve contentment and force your way. Contentment has to be learned, and it, it's learned in the schools of plenty and poverty. You know, we don't we don't teach people, I never taught my kids to complain. They just do it. They probably learned it from me. But they just come out that way, right? We all come out that way. But Paul says we have to learn contentment. We learn it. It must be cultivated. We 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 go after it and we look to grow in it as a Christian. Christian contentment is not unconnected from our circumstances. So, so what, in what circumstances in your life right now is the Lord teaching you to be content? You know, I, I, I thought this morning as I was finishing up writing that I think contentment is learned most frequently for us, probably in the areas of waiting. Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis, Right? on all the waiting, the years he experienced, waiting for relief, waiting for justice. He didn't think it would come, I'm sure. Think about Sarah, you know, in Genesis, in the desert in her womb, longing for a child, for growing family. And, and when, when God tells Abram and he comes home and says, God has promised it must have sounded cruel to her that moment as she's aging. And if we're honest this morning, most of us struggle at waiting. And perhaps in the waiting, God is teaching you right now to be content. Do you see it in your life? Maybe it's not waiting. Maybe it's something else. You, you can answer that question. Christian contentment is learned as we obey Christ and follow His will laid out in the Bible. Friends, do you want to understand God's will for your life? It's right here. It's laid out for you. If you're you're struggling to understand it, we have Bible studies that unfold that for you. We have equipping classes on on Sundays. The will of God for your life is to pray, okay? Okay? If you're not really good at praying, wake up an hour earlier and come and join our equipping class so that you can grow in the area of praying, so that you can obey God's will for your life. See, we're all striving in the same way, seeking to obey God and His will for our life, and it's found in the scriptures. And Christian contentment is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. And it's learned that Jesus is enough through plenty and through poverty. Either he'll be enough for us or he won't and we will crash into discontentment and complaining and deceit and distrust and greed. This verse teaches us, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and that he is enough, friends. And so through these circumstances, we can learn contentment. Second, Paul says we are to learn and to give sacrificially. Paul's going to end the letter uh, and is more clear here what it meant for them to have sent to Paphroditus that we talked about weeks ago with the gift. And so he's going to teach the Christians here in this church about what partnership looks like through sacrificial giving. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, the the gift wasn't just money that was sent. It it, It wasn't just a sign that they cared. The gift meant that they identified with Paul and with his ministry. The church had taken part in Paul's ministry to assist him in the midst of ministry through his sufferings. They were not merely supporters, and they were far less financiers. They were yoked together with Paul, sharing as they were able in the sufferings and the relief of those sufferings. What Paul is saying is they were partners in ministry. Remember I said earlier, ministry is much more like a family than a corporation. This isn't a company here that we're running. As a church, this isn't a company. This is a family, and and we're to care for and minister to one another. We're to minister those that we support. Perhaps we've forgotten that, or maybe you've never heard that before. And perhaps that's why you struggle with relationships here and with a number of ministry workers that we might support. If you only look at these relationships in a technical sense and not a familiar sense, then you will eventually grow cold and distant to the people here and the workers that we support. This is not a corporation. It's a family. And the pastors that this church employs and the ministry staff and the national and foreign workers are family we've agreed in partnership with them. And so there's an obligation to them, and there's an obligation from them to us. But if we only view this as employees, then it makes it really easy to remove them and find the ones that really suit us better. See, what he's saying is this is a two-way relationship. Actually, it's a a three-way relationship with Christ at the center, between the ministry worker and the church family. And as paid pastors of the church, we must view this church as our family, and I need to admit something to you. I need to confess something to you this morning as a pastor, something I'm ashamed of, actually. There were moments, even years at the beginning of the ministry here, that I convinced myself that this church needed me more than I needed them. That's a wicked thought. It's not true. It has been, by God's grace, proven to me and to my heart, especially in the last four years, that I need this church family. That they are family. In fact, for, for most of us here that serve Well, at least for the two full time pastors, you are our only family we have around. You know, they're spiritual brothers and sisters here, spiritual aunts and uncles to my kids, spiritual grandmas and grandpas. And so, ashamedly, I'm beginning to understand this more. Uh, It's amazing how preaching God's word affects the preacher to understand how much, as a ministry partner, I need this church family. And so I'm thankful, very thankful for the partnership that we have here. Thankful for you putting up with us and enduring with us and walking with us. I'm sure Chris and Kate would express the same in the other ministry workers that work here. And just like Paul, I want you to abound in fruitfulness before God. He says here, and he's speaking of the monetary gifts, and he speaks of them as fruit. Look at verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And, and here Paul is following Jesus' the example. Of the followers of Jesus should use their wealth in this life to lay up treasure in heaven. It's as if Paul sees the church as having a bank account in heaven. And every time the church gives to support a gospel worker that Paul, that Paul is doing, that work, it allows him to do more work, which in turn produces more fruit to their account. And the fruit results in their heavenly investment account growing which means that the gospel worker is seeing a rich return for the gospel church as it gives. And the Greek word for supply here actually means to fill up or to fulfill. And so Paul is telling them that God will fully meet their needs. God will fully meet their needs as they give. And did you catch what their gift was? Verse 18 is as if a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It was a pleasant aroma. I wonder what scent attracts you most. I'm attracted to the smell of a charcoal fire, smoking meat. I'm I'm attracted to peanuts and freshly mowed grass for a baseball game, or really brewed, really good brewed coffee. Or my wife's perfume. Paul says here that their sacrificial giving in obedience to God is a pleasing aroma to him. Their giving to the work of ministry is like that fresh cup of coffee. That smell that comes up. And God is pleased. The fragrant offering smell, the act of sacrifice is pleasing to God. Sacrifice, sacrificial giving is pleasing to God. Think about that. You know, think through that. You know, these words here call our minds back to that passage that was read at the beginning of the service in Genesis 8. When, when, when Noah steps off the ark, right? And thankfulness for the Lord preserving him and his family. What does he do? He he offers a sacrifice in, in verse 821. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. See, the sacrifice was was not, not a means to Noah's salvation. So he didn't earn favor with God through the sacrifice. No, it was an expression, a sacrificial giving of thankfulness for the salvation that God had already given him and his family. It was a sacrificial gift of praise, and and it says God was pleased. And so Paul ties this together. He ties this together to, to teach us as Christians, we should give faithfully because that's what pleases God. You should give faithfully and sacrificially because you want to worship God. You want to please God. And so put that down in the, in, in, in the, the regular part of our life, friends. We, we have an offering here that happens. We have an offering box. There's a way to give on, on the website. And, and when you give, when we give, when we all as members of the church give, we actually please God. When we give sacrificially to others, we, that, that smell wafts up to heaven and pleases the Lord. But we need to understand, you need to understand, I don't want you to be misconstrued in any way. You're not earning favor with God by doing that. You're not getting brownie points. He's not saying, well, now, now I might save you. Or now, now, now I might love you. That's not what he's saying. You cannot earn your salvation by giving in the offering. We we give simply because we are saved, not in order to be saved. And we give in response to the marvelous grace that God has given us. See, as Christians, we see his gift for us and we give in response to that gift. And, and God is an incredible giver, isn't he? What did God give us? His son the greatest gift that could ever be given. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friend, you may be here and you've stumbled into this service or just come out of curiosity, and, and maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, but listen, you need to understand you're always welcome here. But you do need to understand that if you stand before God all in yourself and not in Jesus Christ, you stand as a rebel before Him. You stand against Him, and you stand against His Word. And the punishment for your rebellion is death and separation from God forever. And you can do nothing about this situation on your own. You need a rescuer. You need someone who willingly gave up his life for yours. But not just anyone. No, you need a sinless person. And there's been only one of those. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus gave his life for you. He died and took your sin upon himself on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against your rebellion, against your sin. And then Jesus rose from the dead and is alive now with the Father as a completion that was then accepted by God. And now, now you need to repent of your sins, of trust in yourself, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You need to respond to Christ's sacrifice, which was a pleasing aroma to God the Father, a fragrant offering, a once and for all sacrifice, and you repent of your sins and trust in Him alone. Friends, I plead with you to not put this off, but to trust in him. And for us as Christians, and all this we need to remember that there's no longer any need for sacrifice to be made for sin. The Christian man or woman has been made righteous through the complete and sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The temple is now redundant. There's no need for an altar and the sacrificing priesthood that is a thing of the past. The Christian is seen by God as pure and blameless in Jesus Christ. In fact, now every Christian has complete and free access to God, all because of Jesus Christ. And so our sacrificial giving is in a great response to the greatest gift that we could ever receive, Jesus Christ. And that is why we give. And so I ask, church, and only you can answer, how is your giving to the work of ministry, it should be a joyful response for every Christian. I know that many of you are carefully planning for retirement here on earth, but how many of you have given much thought to your heavenly bank account? Do you regularly give to the work of ministry here? See, this verse reminds us of the consistent provision that we have from God. We can all be tempted to 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 rely on our daily provision, that it's somehow the work of our hands. You know, as as full-time ministry workers, it seems very clear for us to sit down at the table and to pray for the food with my kids and say, thank you, Lord, that God's people gave, because we can just tangibly see that. But you're no different than us. I mean, the church didn't pay your salary, most of you. Someone else did. But you didn't do it all. When's the last time you thought through that? Whether you receive your income through Social Security or from your employer. Do you sit down at that dinner table and thank the Lord for the meal and say, thank you, God, for me being so awesome. I am a hard worker. Man, I'm smart. I got that good job. I worked hard for that promotion. Friends, you and I, are, we're no different. We're the same. Because it's ultimately God who gives. He gave you the strength. He gave you the smarts. And he, he can take it away to any of us at any point. He is the giver. He is the one who gives and supplies to us. It was the supply from God. No matter who the employer is. It all comes from His hands. Friends, we we teach about giving here in this church because the Bible talks about it, and we want our members to please God. We don't teach about it. uh, Just so you know, we didn't concoct this now in the elder room thinking, all right, giving's not quite what we want. So Jeff... Let's maneuver this to get a giving series here. Now, this was the next section of the book. We're not saying this because we're lacking. We have learned, either in a basement or abound, to find our strength in Jesus Christ. And so we cover this because the Bible says. As elders, we simply have no idea who gives what. And we continue to trust in the Lord. We don't want to know. But we do want to teach what the Bible says. Because giving is a form of worship for us as Christians. Money is a great tool for the Christian, and yet money is a horrible master. So worship God with your money, but don't worship your money. We also need to understand that generous giving is not the same thing as sacrificial giving. We all need to understand that. Think through that this week. You may give generously compared to others, but the question that only you can answer is are you giving sacrificially? Only you and the Lord can come to that conclusion. And yet here in this section, Paul reminds us that you cannot outgive God. Verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to the, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It all comes from him, friends. We're just stewarding his money. A gospel partner church family has its mindset so firmly impacted by the cross that it has a constant desire and longing to act selfishly and sacrificially toward its gospel workers. And the model for giving is born out of the gospel itself. We give because of great gratitude for what God has so graciously and sacrificially and abundantly has given us. And as we learn contentment in him, we learn sacrificial giving. So we've learned those two. The last, and this is the shortest point, glorify God. He says in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I love that Paul mentions the household of Caesar. I just love that. So It seems that some soldiers and cooks and house cleaners and civil servants in Caesar's house had come to Jesus Christ. John Calvin cuts to the chase in his commentary and says, it is evidence of divine mercy that the gospel had penetrated that sink pit of all crimes and iniquities in Rome. Yes, the power of Rome cannot even stop the power of the gospel. How bad they thought, big bad government, and how horrible they were, the gospel still makes its way through it. And Paul gives testimony of this. As he's locked up, Greet them, especially those in Caesar's household, because there are some of us there. And then he, he invites the church there to, to join him in pronouncing that all eternal glory belongs to God. To, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so may that be our prayer as well. So, friends, are we learning contentment? How is the Lord teaching you contentment right now? You know, you don't have to do this, but I would love to pray with you about that. So if you're willing to share, send me an email or a text message of how the Lord's teaching you contentment, and I will pray along with you. Perhaps I'll share with you how the Lord's teaching me contentment. Not just me, send it to any one of our pastors uh, here at the church. And then and strive towards this spiritual contentment. Remember Burroughs' definition, he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly will in every condition. I was hoping to have that book delivered. It was supposed to be delivered. Uh, this week, and it hasn't. But I've ordered some copies of that book, "The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment." I think it'd be a fantastic book as summer comes to pick up and read together as a group or, or as a family. Uh, it's an old Puritan book written in the 1600s, but there's a whole lot of fruit there for us to to absorb and apply to our life. So hopefully, that'll be on the bookstall next next week. But we've we've belabored here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to partake of the communion meal here this morning. So would you join me as I pray? <laughs> Father, I thank you for supplying all of our needs, especially our greatest need in Jesus Christ. And we confess together as a church that you are a generous God. You have given us abundantly what we most desperately need. And yet we're still learning to find our contentment in you. And so God, we we pray and we ask for your help. God, would would you give us strength to trust in you? Even when all the signs on earth point to the opposite direction, may we trust in you. And would you teach us contentment? Teach us to rely on you and not ourselves so that you'll receive the glory and not us. And now, Lord, as we partake of this communion meal together, may you be glorified in it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.